The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Feel free to continue getting to know each other and hanging out afterwards. Heck, feel free to do it now if you need to, but... Um, how's everyone doing? Good. All right. Well, I think I mentioned before, uh, my name's Jason. If I didn't, uh, welcome again. Especially if you're here for the first time, uh, you haven't been around for a while, you find yourself here about halfway through a series we're doing. And uh, fall is an interesting time uh, of year. We have a sort of a soft start because we have lots of college students coming back. And so we try to uh, pay attention to that fact. Uh, and so we're doing this, this little series. It's a, kind of a whimsical, uplifting journey uh, with our college students and students of life that uh, we have decided to call Dead by Christmas. Um, so there's a slide that says Dead, Dead by Christmas there. So, and that actually means something. It's, it's not a threat or, uh, or even a promise. But it's recognizing, especially using that college season as at least a metaphor, though for some of you it's all too real, that those Christmas moments during college are they're often times of significant change, which also relate to other times in our lives where, where we shift from one thing to another. And often there's a sense of loss and mourning, a little death that might happen. So we started the first week with, with lose your family. You know, that freshman Christmas experience where you come back and say, oh my God, who are these people? And then it turns into a prayer, you know, oh my God, who am I? And figuring that out. Then the second week, Scott spoke on, um, on something, uh, on lose your faith. And how often, about 50% of those who go into college with a real strong, say, church, youth group experience at least, who knows the condition of their heart, but about half of them, 18 months in, so Christmas, sophomore year, walk away from that faith. And we talked about why that might happen and how to kind of overcome that and recognize that really for all of us, we're all about 18 months away from losing our faith anyways. So how does that help the rest of us? And so this week, uh, we're bringing it up to that junior year, that junior Christmas where it all becomes very real that there's a future out there whether we want it or not. And how do we face that future? Whether, again, we're literally at that moment. And I'm kind of curious... Uh, we had a lot of college students at the 9 a.m. Any college students in here for the 11? And we'll have some more. Yeah, I'll grad students count, sure. Um, any of you sensing that? Even if you just start out like you're a freshman, you're still like, oh my gosh, I've got to pick a major. What am I going to be? Who am I going to you know, become? You have any of that sense of angst and anxiety about the, uh, the coming future? Yeah, I was going to... So for the students of life, who Lee, you certainly are... Uh, you got a, your PhD in School of Hard Knocks, probably. Uh, oh, yeah, a couple of them, right? Yeah. They, don't, they can't get you a job, but they look really good, um, those PhDs. All of us can relate to that, though, can't we, of these seasons where there's a future. Uh, I can remember, literally, that, that kind of college experience, which, though it was two decades ago, my memory still, still functions enough that I can remember some of that. 
And I remember that there was choices I was making. I'd actually started out school uh, pursuing an engineering degree, biomedical mechanical engineering. So, of course, I'm a pastor. Uh, and at some point early on, God made it very clear that though I love that stuff, got fantastic, just great grades, really, I still love science, technology, cutting-edge stuff like that, that he's calling me to ministry. And so I had to make some choices. And as I stopped doing one thing, some things died so that others could live in, in my future. Uh, once, I, once I graduated, uh, or as I was getting close to graduation, you know, was pursuing a, a youth ministry degree, to be a youth pastor in particular, and I wanted to, I had a plan. You know, I knew the future that I was going to pursue. And I wanted to find a youth ministry gig with a, with a church that was part of the family of churches that had been so influential in my life when I'd come to faith in Christ in my teen years. This little denomination uh, called the Advent Christian Church. Come to find out the one that I'd found in the corner of Tato Field in northern Maine uh, was one of the few that had a youth pastor on staff and paid people to do that and, and had kind of a vision for that stuff. So couldn't find that. And it was kind of funny, Lisa, who, we weren't yet engaged at that point, um, but she would go around with me to, uh, to candidate, which is a bizarre process. If you think job interviews are weird, you should candidate to be on staff at a church. There's all kinds of extra stuff. Um, so even though we weren't yet married, um, and as Beyonce says, if, if you like it, you ought to put a ring on it. And I did eventually, but... <laughs> That's for you college kids and your crazy music. Um, it's a catchy song, though. Put a ring on it. So uh, anyway, I had to make some choice, chase, changes and choices, and stuff died. My dream of being in that family church wasn't going to happen. I was going to be a youth pastor. So I ended up, oddly enough, in South Portland Church of the Nazarene as a full-time youth pastor, getting paid way too much money for being as young as I was. And that's actually where I met the uh, 16-year-old at the time, Scott Austin who was one of my, uh, I don't know, victims, one of my students there. And so this future, the choices we make, kind of removes some features and adds others. And really, that junior year thing is when we stop filling our, our time with electives, which is, which is really good. In fact, when I transferred, I, uh, I was one course short of having a math minor with my youth ministry degree, because I'd done calculus 1 through 11 and differential equations, and I don't know, I forget, thankfully, most of that stuff. Um, But those became electives when I was a youth pastor, and I had to fill everything with core classes. So that's a little bit what we're talking about. Uh, And how do we enter this future? Uh, When something about the past has to die, and some of those options we once had dies with them? Well, we heard already a little bit from Hebrews chapter 11, but let's go a little deeper into that. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews 11, it's uh, kind of midway through the New Testament. And here are these opening words, this very famous chapter, it's often called the Hall of Faith, because it's all these great examples of faithful men and women. But here's how it opens up. And see how this speaks, this idea of entering the future. Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 3. says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. (laughs) The conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. And by faith we understand 
that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from the things that are not visible. So as we seek to enter this future, this not yet visible future that God is crafting and shaping and and preparing for us in a sense, apparently there's a way of going into that that God approves of. And wherever we see that in Scripture, that there's actually something we can do, because there's very few things we can do that, that God kind of... You know, way to go. You know, it puts a smile on his face, warms his heart, however you want to anthropomorphize God. Uh, There's a way of going about this. It says, by faith, they entered that future, and that's, God approved of that. And so how do we do that? How do we navigate faithfully? There's probably all kinds of ways we could go about this, but what's a faithful way of navigating this future that, we all have to face, whether we're in college, having our quarter-life crisis, our midlife crisis, we're empty nesters, retirees, uh, this future. I want to suggest a few simple things to sort of hang these ideas on. Uh, Nothing magical about them, but might give you some some ways of remembering this. Um, One of the things we'd like to have when we think about the future, we often think it'd be really great to have that crystal ball, Right? You could gaze into that, or, you know, or some vaguely Eastern European woman with a, a handkerchief on her head could, could tell you what your future would look like. You just gaze into that. But really what we need is a compass, not a crystal ball. In fact, some Christians, certainly people in general, often prefer the crystal ball thinking that there's this set future that's etched in quartz, that we just sort of have to play it out. But really, that doesn't appeal to me a whole lot. And in fact, that type of thinking can really keep us from the future God wants for us. If we think it's etched in quartz, in immutable, that can keep us trapped in a, in a dead-end major for you freshmen out there. just want to encourage you. You probably won't graduate with the major you started with. <laughs> Some of you juniors, yeah, it's not going to work out for you either. Um, But if that was the way it had to be, that can remove choices you should be making, we can use that to find ourselves trapped in a relationship that really has run its course and it's time for both parties to move on. Spiritually, we can end up in that cul-de-sac, you know, just circling the traffic circle there and never really finding a a place to keep going. And somewhat this overlaps with an idea of what God's will is, uh, which is a whole other message. Actually, Pastor Scott does a really fascinating job with using some jazz metaphors for God's will. Um, but I tend to think there's a lot more openness to our options. And so what's more helpful to navigate that is a compass, something that gives us a sense of direction. In fact, in, in Hebrews 11, verse 8, we already heard part of this, I believe, but it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was received as an inheritance. Abraham is setting out for this new place. And he set out not knowing where he was going. So did Abraham have no clue? Did he just sort of randomly just pick a direction and go? Or was it that he didn't know all the details? He had a direction. He had a sense of direction. Very clearly, God pointed him that way. And he went. He sometimes detoured and 
made some odd, you know, switchbacks from time to time. But he had a direction. He didn't know, however, the exact details, which I think is part of God's grace if you think about it. If we had a crystal ball, in a sense, and we saw exactly all that we would experience, the good and the bad, and the good, most of us would not go there. We would find excuses. Not, we would find something wrong with that. And so I think God in his grace uh, kind of shields us from some of those details. And so we go into this future not knowing quite where we're going, but that's not the same as not knowing the direction we should head in. Uh, Leonard Sweet, an author that I've enjoyed for about a decade or so, I think, uh, wrote a book uh, called Aqua Church back in the, uh, in the 90s sometime. And he says this about the kind of compass that we ought to be paying attention to. He says, spiritual navigators use a compass, the scriptures. The scriptures point us to Christ. They enable us to locate the North Star. They are not Christ. They are not what we worship. But the compass points us to our life work, following Christ. And so for Abraham, he didn't have the scriptures. There wasn't even God's people at that point. So God's word was much more direct for him. Which let's admit, most of us wish that God would appear to us as a you know, burning bush or a column of flame that would tell us you know, whether to date this guy or take that class or quit this job. But the scriptures are actually far more helpful because uh, they don't change. Like, you can go to them. You don't have to guess whether that was the bush talking or, or just that slice of pizza that I shouldn't have eaten at two in the morning. Um, so it's a helpful compass. And so we can imagine that if we need a compass and not a crystal ball, that maybe the next thing, uh, don't pull up any slides just yet, but if you have a compass, then what you need is a map, Right? That if we're going to go into this future, we need a map. Uh, Lewis Carroll, that famous theologian, uh, who wrote that uh, deep work, Through the Looking Glass, uh, that's guided me many a day. Uh, he wrote this other thing. It's got this great little verse uh, from The Hunting of the Snark, An Agony in Eight Fits. And he speaks, uh, there's this captain who's come before his crew. Here's what he says about maps by way of this little bit of verse. This captain says he brought a large map representing the sea without the least vestige of land. And the crew were much pleased when they found it to be a map they could all understand. What's the good of Mercator's north poles and equators, tropic zones, meridian lines? So the bellman would cry and the crew would reply, they are merely conventional signs. Other maps are such shapes with their islands and capes, but we've got our brave captain to thank. So the crew would protest that he's brought us the best, a perfect and absolute blank. And how many of us, thinking of our future, kind of unfurl that map, weigh it down, we've got our compass, our little, our little measuring things, a slide rule, we, we lay it out and then we realize it's blank. That's not unique to the college crowd, is it? Let's, can I get an amen from everyone else that it's just blank? And it's a very scary thing 
to face an unknown future. But that's the nature of the future. It's unknown. But think of it the other way. If you're living a life that's following a map, what's going on there? Because I would argue you can't map uncharted territory. You know, the map is old by the time you get there or it doesn't exist. And so if we find ourselves sort of following a map, we're probably living someone else's life. Something that's already been explored, worked out, and we just are following the red dotted line. Might be that map that, that, the, that the dad who wants you to have what he couldn't have. And, and son, daughter, here's a map. That well-meaning mom wishes the best for her kids. You know, it's not a detailed map. It's just a little back-of-the-napkin kind of thing. But, but here, I, I want you to have this map. It's the map that we give ourselves. You know, I'm a guy who maps out stuff. I have, you know, I have the 10-year plan. And as I sit down and unfurl that map, and I think it's all set, and then, I, and then I use that compass to find out where I actually am, I realize I'm off in this spot that says, uh, here there be monsters, you know? <laughs> it's the edge. And so, there's this great anonymous quote. That guy wrote a lot of stuff. It says, when you're true to the compass, you have the freedom of the seas. And so we need a compass, not a crystal ball. And what we don't need is a map. What we need is a guide. And so compass and and then a guide. Uh, Some of you may not know this, only because you've been here 20 minutes maybe, but uh, anyone know where I grew up? Maine, okay. I get busted for apparently mentioning that far too often. Scott grew up in Maine as well. And Maine, the state of Maine is very famous for their guides, Anyone ever heard of the Maine Guides? It's a rather elite group of people uh, that, uh, that can take you deep into the woods. And depending on how you pay them and treat them, will bring you back out again. <laughs> but I tell you, if you don't, you will never be found. Uh, and so, so famously, uh, these guides help people navigate places they've never been. So it's not that they have a map, but they have a sense of, of what might be helpful. That's what a guide does. In fact, uh, the main guides were first licensed way back in 1897. Uh, they wanted to have people who could be trusted and trustworthy. And so the game wardens would, uh, there was no test at that point. I think the test didn't show up until the mid-70s. A game warden would be the one that would decide whether you were qualified. You had the, the, the uh, acceptable level of, of main wood lore uh, to share with others. And the first licensed guide... It was actually a woman, Cornelia Thurza Flyrod Crosby, they called her. And, uh, and she would guide, you know, all these kind of tourists that would come up from Boston who would otherwise get lost or eaten by bears or, you know, fall out into the water. She would guide them. And I like that sort of feminine image there because, you know, as the Holy Spirit is described in Scripture, um, it's either neutral, gender-neutral language or actually a feminine ending on the pronoun. Do with that what you will. Um, but it's fascinating. So, kind of like thinking that, that way a little bit. But this idea of a guide in the passage we've looked at, it's little, it's intrinsic in there. Because they're referring back to some Old Testament people. 
and how God guided then might be a little different, but you can still see it embedded there in the passages. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16. See if you can recognize both the need for a guide and then, then how God works that out uh, towards the end of this. So start with 13 through 16, then we'll jump to verse 26. It says, all of these died in faith, as we read in our confessional time, without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. Why could they return to it? Because it was so well mapped out. They knew the way back. They had maps for that. But where they needed to go, maps didn't exist. But as it is, they desire a better country. This, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. And God is the one who guides. And we see uh, in verse 26 how this works in Moses' life as one of the examples. It says, Moses considered abuse, suffered for the Christ, this coming Messiah that he looked forward to but had not yet uh, scene that would be generations later when Jesus would would come on the scene incarnate for the Christ he suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking ahead to the reward and by faith he left Egypt unafraid of the king's anger for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible and so we know God gave uh, lots of great guidance to Moses, the burning bush, as, as the people of Israel were, you know, going through the wilderness, the, the cloud by day, the calm of fire by night. But there was this sense in Moses' life that he was looking towards God himself. And as we know in, in Colossians and other places in the New Testament, that the invisible attributes of God have been made visible in Christ. So now we have a guide that's been made real. And so we don't need a crystal ball compass is far more helpful. Uh, We don't need maps, because where we're going is uncharted. We need a guide. And if we stopped right there, would that be enough? Kind of paint that picture in your head. It's it's an attractive picture. It's a very, very American Christian image of the individual. You've got your compass and maybe the guide that, again, sort of this, this unseen being. It's not actually another person, right? And it's just us and God against the world. You remember those who were here last week, Scott talked about that there's no such thing as, as a Christ, being a Christian alone. That if all we have is a compass and a guide, we're still going to find ourselves lost and discouraged and wondering if we're really on the right path. And so the other really crucial piece is that we need a tribe because we're not meant to go it alone. This future that God's calling us into um, has a real tribal reality to it. And in fact, this Hebrews 11, this this hall of faith, is infused with this idea of, of a tribal community identity. But for us, reading it through our North American, kind of modern, Western lens, we really miss that. As we heard some of those, those names uh, read out during the confessional time or the, that I've done here, our picture is of this rugged individual of Abraham, of Enoch, of Rahab, 
of Abel. And we forget that they did not do these things alone. So let's return to those passages and see if you can begin to sense how absolutely vital being part of a, of a tribe, of a community is. Hebrews 11, verse 20 through 25. It says, by faith Isaac, there's that individual again, right? By faith Isaac invoked blessing for the future on Jacob and Esau. There's that continuation of the tribe. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the top of his staff. So the tribe keeps expanding. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instruction about his burial. He reminds God's people that they have a history, that they're part of a larger tribe. And as they go into this unknown future, they can have some assurance that God has been faithful to this tribe in the past. They passed through the Red Sea. They were delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. They were, they were protected in the wilderness. God's mighty acts have been true for those in this tribe we're a part of, those who've gone before. And by faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth. And did they do that alone? No, there was collusion. You know, the, the whole tribe conspired. Because the government edict from Pharaoh was, kill all the male children as soon as they're born. We don't want an uprising. There's too many of these Israelites here as our slaves. You need to do some population control. And the midwives, did they obey the law? Absolutely not. And so a whole tribe assured a continuing generation, including Moses, who would go on to deliver that tribe from slavery. And Moses, when he, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with his tribe, the people of God, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so let's be clear. A tribe is not enough. The compass and the guide are absolutely necessary because without those, we can end up in a ditch just with a whole bunch of our friends. You know, there's nothing special. In fact, when tribes get together that don't have a Godward sense of direction, that don't have that guidance of God's spirit, whether they recognize that fully or God's grace is just at work uh, and not yet fully understood, that's when things get really ugly when we gather together in tribes, right? But for our college students in particular, my recollection is that it was very difficult to be part of a tribe during those college years. Not like it gets a whole lot easier any other time, but certainly that season of life. Every few weeks, you change classes. Perhaps every couple years, you change schools, like I did. Uh, You change majors, you move from one place to another, your dorms may change, all kinds of things change, and it doesn't seem worth it at times to go to the effort of connecting with other people. And so we can find ourselves in that place and certainly in many other stages of life, alone in a crowd, unconnected. And as Christians, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, we can kind of fool ourselves that having the compass and the guide are enough. And when we find ourselves completely lost and in the wind, 
all by ourselves wonder how we got there. And the answer is in the all by ourselves part. And so I cannot stress enough, whatever stage of life you're in, how vital it is to have your life connected to other people. Whether it's artists in church or not, uh, please believe me, I do not care in the best sense of the word. Uh, whether, whether this is the place or not, you know, that's, that's sort of between you and God. I, that one is on you. Uh, you're welcome. would love to have you. would love to be part of your life. Uh, for college students, the, uh, some of the campus groups, and we have lots of those representatives and some of the leaders, the staff people of InterVarsity Campus Crusade. Those are, those are fantastic places to, to connect. I would say don't do less than those. But I also would caution that if that's the only place you're finding that extended tribe, that's sort of a monoculture. And monocultures are incredibly susceptible to blight. You know, you have that one strain of wheat and the disease hits that, you're going to be real hungry real soon. And so one of the beauties of how God has designed his church, those little tribes he calls churches, is that they're meant to be diverse. One of, the, one of the, the drawbacks that we had early on, we're kind of entering our fourth year here, is that we're fairly uh, kind of a monoculture. Uh, our average age was probably 25, 26, and the bell curve was really tight because it was people that were not quite 20 and people who were just barely 30. That was sort of in it. And now, thank God, we have gray-haired saints and empty nesters and and people with kids, and, and, and there's a stretch there because there's real benefit in that kind of tribe. If you're someone without children, would it be wonderful? Would it be helpful to you? You're part of a tribe where you could observe parenting, the good, the bad, and if you're here for any length of time, the very ugly. I mean, it gets ugly here. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't have them being entertained in a room down the hall so we, don't, so we can avoid all that. They're here. Those and God makes them cute as a survival trait, right? Um, and, but yeah, and if we treat our college students as some sort of subset that needs to go off and do their own thing, you guys would never see breastfeeding. Oh, you know, our RIT guys, that really throws them for a loop. You know? <laughs> they barely know what a breast is, let alone, no, that's... <laughs> Is it 5? It's not 5 p.m. I always get that confused, which service we're in. Um, I don't know where that came from. I'm tired. So very tired. So something about Jesus. Let's pray. No. Um, If you have little kids, would it be wonderful to see folks who have gone through, well, gone through puberty. You should see that too. But have had children who've gone through those stages empty nesters. If you're someone who has literally decades of experience, would it be great to be part of a tribe where you were useful, where you were honored, where those younger than you actually came and sought your wisdom and advice? We talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago. So being part of a tribe, and a tribe that's the more diverse the better in some ways, is part of God's plan for how we go into this future. And really the story of God's people through all the ages 
and wonderfully captured here in Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11, the story of God's people is one of facing an unknown future. But not necessarily an uncertain future. And facing it courageously. Facing it faithfully. Hebrews 11, 32 through 40 is a great little conclusion to all that could be said, but we don't have time for. And the writer of Hebrews, whom we're not sure who it is, um, there's no authorship attested to it. Some people think it's Paul, except the letters to Paul, as Scott said last week, are in order from longest to shortest. And all of a sudden this long letter of Hebrews is tagged on the end. The theory I'm most kind of fond of, and it's mostly just a theory, but there's some support to it, is that maybe Priscilla wrote this, or Junia, one of the women apostles that's mentioned. And, and for its larger acceptance, they sort of obscured that fact. There's some cool history behind that. Nonetheless, it's scripture. And here's how it com- concludes. Verse 32 through 40. It says, And what more should I say? And you'll appreciate this, for time would fail me. We would run out of time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered king. Here is their future. They conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. But here's also a reality of the future that is in store for some. Others were tortured, refusing to accept relief, release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive that future promise, what was promised. Since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from all of us, be made perfect. So there is a future that God has in store. For that great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, all those men and women, for all who've gone before us and for us as well, where he'll consummate all of he is set in motion. And in the meantime, we have those individual futures that we have to work out as well. But we take some, some comfort in the fact that though the future is unknown, it is not uncertain. And if we approach it faithfully with that compass of God's word giving us a sense of direction that we'll sometimes ignore and we'll have to detour but will bring us back to true north, with that guide of Christ's spirit speaking directly to our spirit as we go through that uncharted, unmapped territory. And then to know that there's someone at our back, there's someone at our side, there's those out in front of us because we're a tribe doing it together. That's the way to go into this future. And so as followers of Jesus and those seeking and searching, here's words of encouragement as well. We do not cower before cruel fate. Our future is not etched in quartz. 
We don't bow to a watchmaker God who just winds it up and sets it in motion. There is no puppet master pulling our strings. It's not a deterministic universe. And God, in his sovereignty, instead grants us a stake in that future and generally gives us free will, I believe, and is not diminished because of that, in fact, proves that he can be God in spite of what we might choose to do. He sets the stage, and then I believe he revels in the faithful improvisation. Let's pray. So God, we come before you as a people that to a person face an unknown future. That is the nature of being finite creatures located in time. Our past is well mapped out, but the future is a perfect and absolute blank. And because of that, we pray that you'd provide the compass of your word, the guidance of the spirit of Christ, and a tribe to faithfully travel together with. For those who are followers of Jesus, I pray that they would take full advantage of that grace and reality and that they would choose to invite others to be part of that tribe, to discover that guide, to orient themselves to that compass as well. For those here who aren't yet followers of Jesus, who are seeking and searching, help them along with us ask the hard question, what is the compass I follow? Who is the guide in my life? Do I have a tribe that can help be part of this journey? Help them answer that. Because in asking and answering those questions, I'm confident they will find the direction you have for them, the future that you've laid out for them to discover as well. We ask you these things because you are faithful, even when we are not. And we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We always give space to respond to God's word through the continuing worship, the time spent here. But one of the best places that we make sure we do every week is the Lord's table. And that is a place where you can kind of see if your compass is pointing the right direction. Is a place where you can draw near to Christ and the elements of his body and blood there in the bread and the cup. And it's not a table we could go to alone. It's communion with God, with each other. So if you are seeking to follow Jesus, however imperfectly and wandering that may be, that's a table open for you. If you don't feel that's where you're at just yet, you can spend this time in quiet reflection, in prayer to a God you're not sure is there. And as God's spirit leads you, respond. And if this should be a first act of faith to approach the table, to tear a piece of bread and dip it in the wine and the juice, that would be a wonderful way to start that journey. And I would love to hear about that and talk and pray with you as well. But continue worshiping as God leads you. The table is open uh, and God is calling.
This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.